and uh, hope you've had a wonderful day in the Lord. And uh, fortunately, we've had good weather. And we got a little rain at my house last night, just a brief rain. It didn't last long, but that was nice. And uh, I hope uh, you've had a, uh, just a productive day today and that we're ready to get into the Word of God tonight. We are actually in 2 Kings chapter 16. I want to thank uh, one of our elders, Scott Walker, for teaching last week, chapter 15. And uh, I got a chance to listen this week to it. It was excellent, and I really enjoyed, and it kind of helped me a little bit with where I'm going tonight. But uh, I hope that uh, you're able to, if you didn't bring a Bible, I don't think we have any available, but maybe you can just get over closer to someone and 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 listen in with them. But uh, Let's go ahead and begin with prayer, and then we'll get started in the Word, okay? Well, Father, tonight I want to thank you for your, your, the way you have provided for us, that here we are in a beautiful Founders Hall of Church of Christ, and we're thankful for the privilege of being here and getting to use this beautiful facility, and you've provided for us that way. You provided, uh, we're able to come back here um, a week from Friday for our Good Friday service and experience that together. And we just give you thanks for, for the relationship that we have with them. And we give you thanks, Lord, for just pro providing in our own lives the things that we need when we need them. And oftentimes, Lord, it's easy for us to say, well, I'd like to have this, and I, I wish I had that. But God, you will give us what we need each day, and you're a faithful God. And the things that mean the most and matter the most, you're the provider of. And so tonight we give you thanks. We pray that as we open the Word, your Spirit would guide us through it to understand and to digest and then to live what we've learned. We ask Him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just came from my mother and father's home, and they're not with us tonight because tonight's my dad's 90th birthday celebration. So, yeah. And, she, yeah, she made... She made uh, fried chicken, three fried chickens. Oh, she, the whole chicken, she chops it all up and fries it. it that good deep south fried chicken. And so I, I, I really went off the wagon tonight. I mean, I fell bad. So I had two pieces of chicken. I had a back and I had a wing, okay? A back, I mean, come on. There's not a whole ton of meat on that back. But see, I was raised in a home where, man, the neck, the back, the gizzards, the liver, it all, it's all good. And uh, so it was a wonderful celebration. In fact, I'll head over there when we're done tonight and kind of sit around with a cup of coffee and celebrate Dad. So uh, I hope that each of you, uh, with your families, with your friends, when there are milestone, milestone events in their lives or your life, that you get a chance to share that together. How important it is. You know why? You don't know how long you'll have those opportunities. You just don't. There's no guarantees in life. So you got to grab it. You got to take it. You steal it. You steal it. And uh, thank God for it. Amen. All right. Well, we're in 2 Kings chapter 16. And uh, this is going to be a study of King Ahaz, A-H-A-Z. And King Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And uh, so it starts off in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, let me say this to you. This is double dating. Uh, it's called double dating, and it happened a lot with the kings in the north and in the south. 
especially in the South. And what, what I mean by double dating. So it says here that Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. That doesn't mean that he reigned alone. When he first came into the reign, it's a co-regency with his father. They, that is, the overlap is often, and it could be as many as 15 years of co-regency. And that's really the case here. So even though it's his first year in reigning, it doesn't tell the whole story. If you go to the Chronicles, you'll, you'll see the actual time period that the father and the son overlap on many of the kings, okay? So just to lay that out for you. So Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign again. How many of you would want a 20-year-old uh, president of the United States? Um, Uh, someone said, I'm not going to say who, someone said, right now we'd take a 20-year-old. Okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, i got to recover from that. So, he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Well, that's a lousy epitaph for the kings of Israel right there. I mean, not a single one of them was a good king. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. We're talking about, listen, we're talking about an Israelite, part of God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved who would have ever thought that Israelites would fall into such pagan, ridiculous evil as to have their children put in the fire? Oh, my goodness. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills, and under every green tree. Many of the kings in the north did this. Some of the kings in the south did it. And what they would do is instead of wiping out all of the high places, all of the Asherim, all of the different uh, uh, methods and places of worship of false gods, instead of wiping them out like they should have done, they would leave them and tell the people, it's okay to go worship our God in that place. But you've got these, these remnants, these, these symbols of, the, of paganism. And the people would then mingle with the pagan people. And before you know it, now in the land of God, they're, they're doing these ridiculous things. And, and now we have a king, how wicked he is, he's doing it. Okay? Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Ahaz participated in the calf worship uh, introduced by Jeroboam I. I don't know if you remember that back at Bethel, back at Dan, in those locations, he actually had calf worship. But he said, this is, he said the calf represents God. Well, just because you say an idol represents God doesn't make it right. But, but this, so we don't know that that's what he was doing here, Ahaz, but, but he, we do know that he increasingly brought paganism into the land of God's people and idolatrous practices became a, a household thing, man. You had idols in the homes, and they were worshiping other gods. 
uh, even while they worshiped the one true God, which they weren't really worshiping Him. So if you look at verses 10 through 16, which we're going to cover tonight, but let me just say this to you, you'll see the comparison to Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. And it includes things like worship of Baal through idols and the worship of Molech by sacrificing children in the fire. By the way, that horrible practice was continually condemned in the Bible, in the Old Testament. So let me give you a, a, an example of that. Take your Bible, if you will, turn to Leviticus chapter 20. We'll look at two verses here, or two, uh, two different uh, references. Leviticus 20, we'll pick it up at verse 1 once you're there. Leviticus 20, verse 1. This is what God had to say about the worship of Molech, which is a false god. He said, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people, of, this is verse one, say to the people of Israel and one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. You think God's clear in his position on sacrificing children to Molech. If they do it, they die. That's what, they, that's what Leviticus taught. That's what Deuteronomy taught. The soul that sins shall die. The sins of the father shall not be on the son, neither shall the sins of the father be upon uh, the son or, or the sin of the son upon the father. The soul that sins shall die. And he goes further. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. He even tells you how you're going to carry out capital punishment. I myself will set my face against the man, that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes uh, to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech, in other words, if they're friends with that guy and they just kind of look the other way and don't make a big deal out of it, look what the Lord says. This is how much of an abomination it is. He says, and do not put him to death then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from the, among the people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. So God took this very serious, the worship of Molech, uh, sacrificing children. Uh, now turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And let's pick up at verse 9. We'll just read four verses here. Deuteronomy 18. Nine. I'll give you a second. Go ahead. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable, abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a, necrom a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. In our day, people hang out on the horoscope like it's their life depends on it. 
They seek palm readers. They seek uh, all kinds of evil, spiritual evil. To God, church, it's an abomination. Let me tell you another abomination in the Old Testament. We're not going to turn to it, but it's an abomination in the eyes of God for a man to ever put on anything belonging to a female. A man is never to wear the clothing of a woman. And we see, and maybe you've experienced it. You've been in settings where it's a joke. It's just a joke. We're just having fun. And some guy dresses up like a woman and whatever. To God, it's not funny at all. It's an abomination. The penalty, death in the Bible. Why would God treat that that way? When it's just, you're just playing. There's no big deal. Here's why. Because he knows what it will lead to. You open a door. When you have a child and you let the child cross-dress, playing around, a little boy, three years old, going around in high heels, don't do it. In the eyes of the Lord, that's an abomination. And it, and it plants things in a child. We, we need to be so, so respectful of the truth of the word. Why? Because God knows best. He's the real father knows best, right? Amen. And so, this is very interesting here, this Deuteronomy 18 passage. So Moses gives a strict injunction not to copy, imitate, or do what the polytheistic nations were doing. He, he actually spoke nine detestable or abominable practices of the Canaanites in, in this passage. And so let me tell you what they were. Number one, you can write them down if you want. Number one, sacrificing children in the fire. In Deuteronomy 12, 29, again, when the Lord your God cuts off, cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dis dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you, you be not enslaved to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also serve the same, or I may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. I mean, before the Israelites went into the promised land, the land that God gave them, he over and over told them, you're going to experience these things from these nations. Drive them out of the land and do not inquire about their practices of pagan worship. Do not try to practice their, their worship along with your own worship. Do not become friends with them. Do not intermarry with these nations. That's exactly everything that God said. And he knew because he has foreknowledge. He knew what they would do. And they did all of that. And now here we are in 2 Kings and... The northern kingdom is full, fully given to pagan worship. See, it starts with one little thing. And before you know it, the whole nation is corrupt, is gone astray. Now, that shouldn't be hard for us to understand being in the United States of America today. It just takes a little bit. I wrote something this morning about political correctness. And political correctness is when you 
It's when you use certain words, you, 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 you cease using certain words or speaking of certain people in a certain way because it might, in, it might hurt them. It might, not, it might make them feel uncomfortable. Political correctness is not letting anybody feel uncomfortable. So here's a question I have for you. In this postmodern, post-Christian secular culture that is all about political correctness, how then is a person to know that they are a sinner and they're destined for hell if you can't say anything that might offend or hurt them? I want to tell you something. From the front cover of this Bible to the back cover, this book is intended to offend sinners. God doesn't play this game where we try to warm up to sinners and be their best buddies so they'll like us, and let's change how we do our church so they'll want to come and be part of it. This book does not play that game. Political correctness is nowhere in here. God, the only way a person gets saved is by being confronted with their sin. And I'm not saying that you are the one to do the confronting and get down on them. You share the truth of the gospel. You share that they're born into sin and that they are a sinner, but you're not trying to beat it over their head. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But I can promise you, if you share the gospel, the gospel's going to offend them, especially if they don't want to hear about God. But that's the work of the gospel. So if you go along with political correctness today, you'll never share with anybody the gospel. That's how Satan is duping this world. Now it's not even appropriate in this world to love people enough to try to save them from, from hell. So what do you do? You keep sharing the gospel in spite of how the world sees it. It doesn't matter. This is who you answer to, the Word of God, the Lord, right? Amen? And this is what God is saying. He's saying, don't even let the thing get started. If you let it get started, it's going to just, they're going to rub off on you a whole lot more than you'll rub off on them. That's why the scripture says, don't stop forsaking or don't forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. Why? Because if you're not with the people of God and engage, and I'm not talking about just going to church on Sunday. I mean, having relationships with Christians building off of each other. It's called edification. You're building each other up. If, you, if that's not happening in your life, believe me, the world will have, over time, the world will have more effect on you than you will in the world. You need to be in the presence of others who believe in the same God, who are struggling in the same world, but who are absolutely, they're bent towards doing what God calls them to do. It'll strengthen you, it'll challenge you, it'll encourage you, and it'll give you boldness to go out and do what it is God's called us to do, and that is share the gospel. So, so this is really a picture that I think we can relate to. It, it, it's just right there in front of us. So, so here, let me give you these nine things. First, again, sacrificing children in the fire. Secondly, divination. That is seeking to determine the will of the gods by examining and interpreting omens, which is hogwash. It could be, look, there could be some demonic activity that's real in that, but it'll never stand up to the test of Scripture. Thirdly, fortune-telling. That's attempting to control the future through power given by evil spirits, seeking the dead spirit of your mother to ask her how, where should I shop tomorrow, mom? Should I go to Winn-Dixie or Publix? 
and then some kind of an evil spirit manifests in the voice of your mother and says, don't go to either, go to the Walmart neighborhood grocery store. Seriously, you're going to live by an evil spirit? And that's all it is. Number four, interpreting omens, telling the future based on signs. Five, sorcery, inducing magical effects by drugs or other potions and things of that sort. Uh, you, 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 do you know anybody who has something either on their body or in their home for the simple purpose of protection? An item, an object, and they think it's going to protect them. Okay? A lot of people have that. Listen, there's Christians who have them. Because that's how they were raised. Their grandparents had them. Their parents had them. So they have them. And not knowing it's an abomination to God. God is your source for protection. Period. You cannot look to a little statue of Jesus on a cross. You can't look to a cross to protect you. That's not the purpose of the cross. The purpose of the cross is to draw men to God, right? Jesus said, if I be lifted up on the cross, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Symbols. Yeah, any kind of a little trinket, symbol, whatever. Uh, amulets people wear around their neck like it's going to protect. Okay? So there's these interpreting omens, number four. There's sorcery, number five. There's number six is charmer, conjuring spells, binding other people by magical mutterings. I told you I, I, I was the church service preaching and a woman came in the side door and came and just walked across the front and stood right there in front of the pulpit in front of the people and she's just looking at me and and i just sensed in my spirit the lord saying don't give her any attention i just kept right on preaching so then she sat down as soon as the service was over i i came off the platform she stood up came right towards me and started muttering, just murmuring. I said, ma'am, I don't understand what you're saying. And I said, Let, come over here and have a seat. So she sat down. I got a woman in our church, a godly woman, to come over and just be a witness to it. And she, this is in the main sanctuary, so it's not like we were off in some private room. And I sat down about this far from her. And I said, ma'am, you need to say it in a way that I can understand. I don't understand what you're saying. And she looked at me and said, look into my eyes. And I said, ma'am, you are demonically possessed. And I said, come here. And we went back in a side room with some of the elders and we prayed with her. And she had been abused as a child. And she was living with a sorcerer and was under that influence for several years and had gone into the dark side, man, where she was caught up in all kinds of ridiculous nonsense, witchcraft. And I'm just telling you, that's, that's, it starts with something little, and Satan takes it and throws it wide open and makes it much bigger, and it comes to a point where you can't control it anymore. It controls you. And these things that he's speaking of, charmer, a medium, 
one who supposedly communicates with the dead, but actually is communicating with demons. Nobody's ever, listen, I'm not trying to offend anybody in the room, and I know I've got to be careful here because this could be offensive to some of you who somehow think that your, your loved one who died has come back to you and spoken to you. Listen to me, I'm going to say this as clearly and simply as I can, not based on my opinion, but based on the Bible. They cannot come to you, and you cannot go to them. Once they are dead, they can't come back. So you say, but wait a minute. They looked like my loved one. They spoke. When they spoke, they even pointed things out about me that only they would know. Do you not think demons can do that? In the Old Testament, they're called familiar spirits. They're very familiar to you. You don't know that they're demonic. They are. Billy Graham, of all people, in his book, Angels, probably written back in the 70s, I'm just guessing, somewhere around there, an older book. But in that book, he travels to a crusade, and after the crusade, one night at the crusade, they had like several nights. And some man, a businessman, uh, very well thought of and respected, he came up after, I really appreciated what you had to say tonight. I'd love to have lunch with you. And Billy Graham said, okay, we're in town all week. I'll be glad to do that when you want to do it. He said, he said my schedule looks like Thursday's a good time. And the guy, oh, I can't do Thursday. He said, I, I, I go and meet with a, 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 a well, he didn't say sorcerer, but some kind of a person, a charmer, whatever. And I speak to my mother, my dead mother, every Thursday. And Billy Graham said, really? He goes, yes, sir. He said, okay, you going this Thursday? And he said, yes, I am. He goes, okay, I want you to do something for me. When you go there and that spirit comes up, your mother, I want you to ask a question. In the name of Jesus, who are you? The man went, this is Billy, it's in his book, it's documented. This guy goes and he asked the question and immediately that demonic spirit, which was coming through the voice of the, the mediator, okay, immediately became violent and the face became dis, uh, contorted. Anger came out of that person. Whatever demon was part of this, it was a lie. The whole thing was a lie. He thought it was his mom. They can't come back and you can't go to them. Don't get caught up in that nonsense. It's demonic. It's not of the Lord. I'll take it a step further. All these people who've had these, these heavenly experiences, they died for five minutes or 25 minutes or an hour. They came back and I was with the Lord and here's what heaven looks like and all these things. I don't, I'm sorry, for me, I don't, I don't believe any of them. Because one guy actually said that, that the Lord just walked right up to him and he was talking with the Lord. Uh, until you're glorified, you can't look at the Lord and live. Unless the Lord comes back and manifests in a human body that you can understand. You're not going to experience that. I, I, just be careful with all that kind of stuff. People then begin to live for it. What's the next experience? What did you have? What happened to you? Who, who have you? And all of a sudden now it grabs you. Be very careful. That's all I'm saying to you. Number eight. 
necromancer, one who has an intimate acquaintance with the demonic spiritual world. They call up the dead. They investigate and seek information from the dead. People go to them thinking they're going to somehow get answers that they need in this life. These evil practices were the reason the Lord was giving them over to the enemy because they wanted it. They were going after it. And God said, okay, go. But you're going to suffer greatly. And boy, did Judah and Israel suffer because of all this pagan worship. And so here Judah is caught up in all these abominations under Ahaz's leadership. By the way, this qualifies Ahab as likely the worst king in uh, Judah. Now, he doesn't come close to the worst king in Israel, but in Judah, he's, he's probably the worst, okay? Because he allowed the sacrifices on the high places, uh, he allowed pagan worship. Uh, it was so bad that the text actually says he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. By the way, this is the first record where Judah imitates Israel's apostasy. So Israel had always been given to false gods. Now Judah has fallen into it, big time. Who were the two prophets that were living at the time of 2 Kings chapter 16? I'll tell you who. Isaiah and Micah. They were the prophets that God sent at that time. So take your Bible, turn to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Let's pick up at verse 2. Let me read for you. Micah 7 verse 2. You're going to have to go back to the back of the Old Testament, right? Micah is one of the minor prophets that you're not picking up your Bible and reading Micah every morning for devotional necessarily, right? Uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Now, by the way, this is Micah. What period is he living in? The same exact time that Ahaz was the king. So everything he's talking about lines up with where we are in 2 Kings 16. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. I mean, nobody's innocent. The whole thing is corrupt. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. I mean, there's nothing righteous happening at this time under Ahaz. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So Micah is letting you know just how corrupt, how fallen the people 
of God were in that day in Judah. And he's telling us, warning us, calling us to a warning. He was trying to warn them as well. Going back to our text in verse 5 of 2 Kings 16, Then Re Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, uh, king of Israel, come up to wage war on Jerusalem. So let me explain. So the Syrians and, the, and Israel, which is the northern kingdom, come together in an alliance. The alliance was not just so they could raid Judah. They aligned because they also knew that they had to deal with the Assyrians, which was a large empire at this time. So they came together for that reason. So Israel joined with the Syrians rather than joining with God. Now Israel and Syria are coming against God's people in the south. Nobody would ever think Israel would turn against their own kind, the people of God, but they did. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath. That would be a town or a city for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath where they dwell to this day. So this was part of Pekah's anti-Assyria policy. He thought that with Judah defeated, Syria and Israel together could hold off the Assyrian Empire. Okay? Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, this is going to be fascinating. We're going to be talking about Isaiah 6, or 7, chapter 7 for the rest of the evening. But uh, go, turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter... Well, you don't have to turn yet. We'll turn in just a minute. Isaiah 7, it's very clear that the goal of this attack against the southern kingdom, Judah, was to dethrone Ahaz and set up a Syrian king in Judah. So Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to hand over the southern kingdom to an Assyrian king, or to a Syrian king, to a pagan king. Okay? That's what this attack is all about. And Ahaz lost a lot of men in this attack. 120,000 Judean soldiers were killed. 200,000 of the people were taken into slavery. They were held captive. They were hauled back to, Syria, to uh, Samaria, which is the capital of Israel in the northern kingdom. So it looks as if from from everything you see, that the reign of David's family, his ancestry, is going to die out. It looks like it's over. There's nothing that can happen. That's not true. That's not true. God said that Jesus would come through the line of David, and guess what? He did. So when they took the hostages captive from the southern kingdom and hauled them up to Samaria, uh, a prophet named Abdel... Uh, I'm sorry, Oded, O-D-E-D, Oded. He rebuked the army managing the captives in Samaria, and he called on them to return the captives to Judah. Let them go, release them, let them go back to Judah. These leaders in Israel responded to Oded, and they let them go. So they clothed and fed the captives, it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, and they returned them to Judah. So when it looked as if 
the southern kingdom was going to be wiped out. David's reign, his, his bloodline would be stopped. That didn't happen. God, through a prophet in the northern kingdom, spoke to the soldiers and somehow had enough influence that they released him and let him go. You know who gave the influence, God himself, right? And so one, one scholar put it this way, a commentary said, the kings of Israel and Syria thought of themselves as burning, burning torches who had come to destroy Judah and the dynasty of David. But God said they were just like burnt out smoking sticks who would not ultimately do much damage. Amen. Praise God. Now that's recorded in Isaiah. Isaiah, who's alive at this time, is constantly giving warning to Judah of what's going to happen and how they need to turn to the Lord. Now they weren't listening, and in this case they didn't listen. So verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers, I don't even know, Tiglath-Pileser, king of, not Syria, Assyria saying, I am your... And they were bigger. Assyria, the empire of Assyria was much bigger than the kingdom of Syria. Okay? Uh, I am your... Listen, this is, the, this is the king of Assyria. And this is Ahaz, the king of Judah. And he's saying to the king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. So he attacked Syria, broke the alliance with the northern kingdom, and freed Judah from the grip, the besiegement that they were under. Now, remember, before Ahaz did this, Isaiah offered him a sign for assurance, listen now, that God would see them through their struggle if he would only turn to the Lord. When he saw those two kingdoms coming against him, he didn't turn to the Lord. He turned to the king of Assyria and gave away treasure from the Lord's house. And then he said to the king of Assyria, we will be your servants. Basically, we're your city-state. You're in control. Isaiah warned him and said, you need to turn to God. God will help you. And he's show, I'm just showing you how defiant against God. Jude, the, Judah, uh, the king of Judah was. Um, so he, Ahaz surrenders to the enemy. He refused to trust the king of Israel. Instead, submitted himself to the king of uh, one of the kings of this world. We can do the same in our, in our day, can we not? We, we stop praying, we start trusting in man for our good, for our protection, for our resource, for our help. Now look, the Bible doesn't say, okay, just trust God, He'll provide a paycheck. Just expect it every Friday, God will have a paycheck coming into you. It's not what it says. It says, it says uh, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. 
but I'm trusting God for the job that I'm going to get. I'm trusting God that He has created me in such a way and knows me so well, He knows what kind of work I can do well. And God will provide for my family because I'm going to do all I can as a worker, but I'm trusting in the Lord. You might work for some big company and they pay you well, but that's not where your hope is. That company can go down. Good grief. We all know, remember, you, you read about the Great Depression, right? And you read about even back in 2000s, what, five, seven, whenever it was, and what happened to the market here in, in our area in Florida? I'm just telling you, it can happen again. It probably will happen again and again. The Lord is our trust, church. But they, he, he trusted in man, not in God. Okay? Uh, Isaiah, turn now to Isaiah. Well, I want you to see just how Isaiah tried to prepare them how he tried to turn them back to the Lord. Isaiah chapter 7, we'll pick it up at verse 10. Isaiah 7, verse 10. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This isn't even the first time he's tried to connect with Ahaz from the time he became king. Verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as, a, as Sheol or high as the heaven. doesn't matter what sign you ask for. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He's hiding behind that. The reason he's not going to ask is because he doesn't want God to be in control. He doesn't want to obey the law of Moses. He wants to do things his way. So he gives some answer that sounds good on the surface. Remember when, when, when Saul came back from, he was told to take King Agag and, and wipe him out and wipe out the people, every one of them, even the children, even the animals? You say, that's, that's horrendous. Why would God do that? Because God has foreknowledge and he knew that those people would come up and try to completely annihilate and wipe out Israel. So God said, you've got to take them out. And Saul goes out and comes back, and he didn't take him out. In fact, he brings Agag, the king, back with him. And he comes walking in, so proud of himself, you know, and, and the prophet comes to him and says, uh, wait a minute, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Oh, well, I saved the choicest of the animals for our sacrifices to God. Wait a minute, but what did God say? Kill all the animals. Don't save the choicest animals. It's, it's, look, it's disobedience. Partial disobedience is still disobedience. Well, that's the same thing that's happening here. And he said here, verse 13, and, here, and, and, and he said, but Ahaz, I'm sorry, and he said, here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, here it is. Look at this, folks. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I'm going to give you a sign of what's going to happen. Now he starts talking about the coming of the Messiah. Remember what he said to him earlier? Ask for any sign. You can't ask for one that's too high or too low. It doesn't matter what you ask for. And when he wouldn't do it, he says, well, I'm going to go ahead and give you one anyway. Verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how, he, how to refuse 
the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land will the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. He's telling him right there, you're, you're gonna, it's going to be so bad for you. The king of Assyria is coming after you. Well, you know the story that the southern kingdom was hauled off into captivity. The northern kingdom was hauled off into captivity. And he's warning them right here. Now, to make matters worse, Ahaz takes the silver and the gold, and he gives it to this king of Syria. And essentially, he's made Judah a subject, a slave to the pagan nation of Syria. You can only wonder what blessing might have come if Ahaz had surrendered to the Lord. How things would have looked so differently, you know? But God knew he wouldn't. That's why God ordered the king of Assyria to come up against them. That's why God ordered Israel and Syria to come down upon them, because he knew how wicked they were. But if only he had sacrificed, surrendered to God in the same way that he surrendered to this northern kingdom, or to this Assyrian uh, king. Uh, if only he had remembered how David handled matters in the same situation, there were people and there were, there were groups that came up against David, nations that came against David. His own nation came against His own son, Absalom, came against him. How did David handle this? Let me tell you how. Write it down. Psalm 18, verse 6 through 17. I'm going to read it for you. Psalm 18, 16, or 6 through 17. In my distress, David said, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked, because he was angry. God heard David's cry for help because David was being attacked by all, on all sides, and God began to get angry. And it says, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water out of the brightness before, his, before him. Hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and He sent out His arrows and scattered them, scattered the enemy. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at, the, at, at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. And He sent from on high, He took me, He drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from the strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were, too, they were too mighty for me, but they were not too mighty for God. If only Ahaz had remembered this passage of Scripture, what David had said, wow, things would be different. So back at verse 10 in, in our 2 Kings 16, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, 
king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. That's a misprint too, I think. It's supposed to be Syria. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, a model of the altar. So the Uriah would have been the priest of Judah. And so when he saw the altar of this pagan king, he was so impressed by the, the, the beauty, the creativity of this altar, he sent back a picture of it, a print, a drawing, to the priest of the Most High God and said, make it. I want this thing. When I return, I want it set up. And that's exactly what they did. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. No, that was the Assyrian king because they conquered Damascus. That's right. So, um, first of all, it's very unusual that a king of Judah would ever travel outside of God's territory. They just didn't. Other kings came to them because others knew. When it was peaceful and they came to them, is because they knew that they served the one true living God. So the kings of Judah didn't have to go traveling. This guy has to go and set up in front of this other guy and get on his knees and beg and kiss his hand and whatever else he did. It's a sad picture. 2 Chronicles 28.23, write that down. 2 Chronicles 28.23, it explains why King Ahaz was attracted to the worship that he saw in Damascus. It says this, quote, 2 Chronicles 28.23, For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. Now just get the picture of the, the idiocy of this king. The prophet of God, Isaiah, told you if you would come before God and ask for help, God will provide David talked about how God provided in his day. God will do the same for you. But instead he goes off to the king. Now he's kissing the king. <laughs> I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. He thinks his help's going to come from this guy. Are you kidding? Just because he could take out Syrians and take out uh, the northern kingdom? Seriously? But they Look what it says at the end of the verse. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. The one that he had turned to and trusted in ended up ruining, ruining him. Folks, that's true in our day as well. You put your hope in something or somebody, and guaranteed down the road, God will show you how wrong that decision was. I hope you live through it. I hope it doesn't take your life, that poor decision. This explains why many churches today put their trust in the tools, in the techniques, in the principles of worldly success. He sees them worship at this altar. He's like taken by this altar. Man, I've never seen an altar so beautiful. Man, the creativity, the, the, the skill of their labors, the craftsmen, what they built. We got to do this back. We got to take this back to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what he did. He trusted in the ways of other kings. We do it today. Pragmatism has taken over many churches and many pastors. I want the latest, greatest. If we're really going to reach people, I, I, I remember back when, when texting really became popular. I don't know when that was, you know, 20 years ago. Is that about 15? I don't know how long. Anyway, whenever it was. And I remember the big thing at the talk at the pastor's conference that I attended. 
And by the way, I no longer attend those conferences. But the talk of that time was, let me show you what they're doing at such and such church. And the pastor of that church gets up and he's so proud because, man, it's brought so many lost people into the church. What is he doing? Here's what he's doing. Well, I don't preach from a pulpit anymore, a podium. I just come up with a Bible and I have a stool and I have a cup of coffee. And I just talk to people. And then on the screen, I'll have some points that I'll make and I'll have them fill in the blanks. But then I stop like 15 minutes into the sermon and I, and, and I put up on the screen, you can ask Pastor Jeff anything you want to ask him right now. Just text it to him. And, and we'll put the text up on the screen. And then I'll take time to answer your question right there in the middle of the service. And then we'll go a little further and then we'll stop and let you text some more. And we'll put it up on the screen. Isn't this cool? This is how the world wants it. They love this. They didn't think the church would ever get here. You might have a church filled with people, but they're not saved. If they need that, they're not saved. Technology doesn't save anybody. Creativity doesn't save anybody. It's the Lord who does the saving. And all he needs is a faithful vessel to open the Bible. Open your mouth and let the Lord fill it. Stop trying to be somebody important. Just be faithful to the Word of God. Let the veracity of the Word change the hearts of man. But that's not what's happening in many places today. And it's right, out of, it's right out of the Bible here. We're seeing it all the way back in 2 Kings. Some things never change. What, isn't that what, what uh, uh, Solomon said? There's nothing new under the sun. I've experienced it all. There's nothing new. That's a, that's a truth today. People say, oh, it's so bad now with homosexuality. Come on, man. Do you not remember the Roman Empire? You have an emperor who marries his nephew, dresses the boy up like a woman, and marries him. That's the leader of the greatest nation on the earth at that time. It's been that bad before. Nothing new under the sun. Sin is sin. And then you get these people who don't evidently know history, and you'll say, they'll, they'll say that you're a, a homophobe, and somebody will say, man, you need to get in the 21st century. Oh, I don't, really don't. I can go back to the you know, 3rd century, the 2nd century, and I can tell the same evil that you're part of today that you think is so cool and so new. It's not new. It was evil then, and it destroyed a nation, Rome. It played a part in that. Craziness. Now, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Uriah, that's Uriah, was a faithful witness. Wait a minute, this is the guy that set up the altar the way the king wanted it, of a pagan altar. But here's the deal. That's when he was younger. So the priest used to be faithful. He was a witness. But over time, compromise set in. And now he's doing whatever the king wants, even if it's worshiping pagan idols. That's the corruption, the influence of corruption that Ahaz had on the nation. So back to our, excuse me, back to our text, verse 12. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. And then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it. You could actually get up on this altar. It was so big, it had steps going up it. And burned his burnt offerings and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. 
And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's uh, burnt offering uh, and, the, and the grain offering. Uh, he, he's basically saying, take all the offerings and put them on this new altar. And, ver- and he says it later here in verse 15, And throw on it all the blood of the burnt offerings and all the blood of the sacrifice, but the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the strands and removed the basin from them. And he took them down the sea uh, from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. So he's tearing down the altar of the Lord and creating his own form of worship. Verse 18, and the covered way for the Sabbath that has been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around and, and, and the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his father in the city of David and Hezekiah his son reigned in, this, in his place. What a sad tale. I... Uh, I am so thankful for Vero Bible Fellowship. And I am so thankful for God's guidance, for His providential hand in bringing all of us together. He certainly did that in my life. I am here because of God's providential hand. And once we started as a a young fellowship, very young, at that time, I think we probably had maybe 75 to 90 people joining us over at the, the plaza. And I remember getting a call from a pastor down south of here of a very large church. I don't know how many campuses they have, probably seven or eight at least, all over. Scott, you probably know how many. I don't have a clue. Seven, eight. And each campus, I mean, some of those campuses, like this Easter, they'll probably have three 5,000 people show up at one of the campuses, just one of them. It's huge, huge church. And the pastor said to me, because he knew me from when I was in Palm Beach Gardens, and he had just learned of what happened when I was pastoring at First Church of God. And he said, Greg, I'm really sorry to hear that. And uh, he goes, I've known you for 30, 35 years, whatever it is. And he said, I, we're, we're going we're gonna to plant a church in Vero. And I want you to be the pastor of that. He goes, I wake up in the morning, and when I think of Vero Beach, I think of Greg Simsrock. And he was trying to lay it on thick. And as sure as I was sitting in my truck at that time, getting ready to pull into the parking lot somewhere, I said to him, I really appreciate the fact that you believe in me that much. Really do. Before I could even keep going, he stopped me and says, and I'm going to let you preach your own sermons because you're a good preacher, you're a good teacher. You don't even have to do the, 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 the service that we project on all the different campuses. And I knew that would never be the case. You know? so, but I said, well, let me, let, me, let me say this. I said, I appreciate the fact that you're considering me. But I'm telling you, the Lord has already called me to a work. 
a small work, but it's a work of the Lord. And I will not be doing anything else. And he said, man, you know, I don't know, Greg, you, you're, you ought to be pastoring a big church. You could pastor one. I said, I already did that. I said, I don't want to ever do that again. <laughs> I've had my fill of that. I just want to be a faithful servant of the Lord. I'm going to tell you something. Don't think for a second that fleshly speaking, that wasn't appealing. Okay? Job security, at least for a year. But all the things you could see, oh, wow. But I knew in my spirit, I just knew that's not of the Lord. This is like a test that God's giving me. And I, I never look back. And, I'm, and I think each of you are drawn to the church in your own unique way as God's providential hand led you. He brought us together as a fellowship. He's called us out of darkness and into light. And don't go back to the darkness. Don't get used to the dark, even though the darkness is all around us. Don't get used to it. Remain faithful to this so that you can continue to be a glow worm for the Lord in this world. Don't ever get above a glow worm. You know, you're crawling around. You're Stay humble, but be a glow worm. You know, you know where I got that from? Winston Churchill was at a party, and he was inebriated as usual. And he was walking around talking to people, and he saw this young girl, the daughter of the people that hosted the event in this beautiful home. And he walked up to her, and he said, uh, young lady, and he started talking and sharing. And, of course, he's running on and on because he's drunk. And uh, he said to her, he said, we're all worms in this world. He said, but I am a glow worm. <laughs> but we are glowworms for the Lord. Amen? We really are. And we can get smashed <laughs> pretty quick. But that, what does that mean? Nothing. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Be a glowworm for Jesus. Amen. Amen. When I, when I was a kid, we'd go up to Ohio in the summers, and uh, I remember... Uh, you know, we'd go up and visit my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. My dad had 13 brothers and sisters. So we'd go up and have a really a fun time. And uh, we, we, they all had farms. And so, you know, the lightning, the little bugs. Yeah. And we'd go out and chase them. And, all, and then, okay, I was a little demented with my cousins, but we'd take them and smash the, and put the, the glow all over our fingers or whatever and go around like, I'm saying that that's who you are as a Christian, though. You, you are, the more you get smashed, the more that stuff sticks. Amen. So this is really weird stuff. I mean, terrible analogy. I'm tired. It's been a long day. I've got a party to go celebrate at. So <laughs> love all of you and, and so thankful that you're part of our fellowship. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for being willing to grow in God and to come and study his word. Father. We do give you thanks tonight for this time that we've had. And I pray that everybody here would, 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 would feel and know that they are valued first by you, but also by the church that you've given them. I pray that we would all know how much you need us, that you've called us, and how much we need each other in the kingdom of God. May we continue to build relationships and strengthen ourselves. 
Lord, to invite just after church on a Sunday, walk up to people that we've noticed, but we don't really know that well. And hey, would you guys like to go to lunch with us today? And Lord, that we would just build those relationships and strengthen ourselves in the Lord and grow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.